and welcome to the third episode in the UTS ACRI podcast's new series focusing on analysis of COVID-19 and its impacts within the context of the Australia-China relationship. Discussion in the podcast's first two COVID-19-centric episodes focused on the second-order effects of the pandemic on the Australia-China economic relationship. In this episode, we'll be turning our attention to the potential implications of the pandemic for the trajectory of the relationship between the US and China, homing in particularly on how each country's response might influence the global geopolitical and economic order. Discussions will naturally also reflect on what this could mean for Australia in a post-pandemic world. Professor James Lawrenson, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, is joined by Professor Xie Tao, Dean of the School of International Relations and Diplomacy at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Xie is also adjunct professor at UTS ACRI. His academic expertise focuses on US-China relations, American public opinion, and the US Congress. Today in the UTS ACRI podcast, we're going to continue our focus on COVID-19 from the perspective of the Australia-China relationship. Our last two episodes have had a clear economic focus. We talked about what COVID-19 means for Australia's exports, one third of which go to China. Then we looked at our imports, supply chains and foreign investment, areas in which China again features prominently. Now, as hard as it might be for an economist like myself to admit that economics isn't everything, well, it's not everything. And our Australia-China focus at UTS ACRI also understands that the bilateral relationship occurs in a broader, bigger picture context that includes other nations, some powerful, some not so much, but still possessing considerable agency and where politics and security rather than economic efficiency may impact on critical decisions. So today we're going to step back from the economics and take a look at one of those key bigger picture issues. Both sides of the Australian political divide will admit that from Australia's perspective, the most important bilateral relationship in the world is one we actually aren't part of, and that is the US-China relationship. Today, I'm delighted that we are joined by an expert in US-China relations, Professor Xie Tal, the Dean of the School of International Relations at Beijing Foreign Studies University. He holds a PhD from Northwestern University in the United States, and I've got to say, in my experience, he is one of the world's most incisive observers of the US-China relationship. And I'm delighted to add, he's also an adjunct professor at UTS ACRI. Welcome to the UTS ACRI podcast, Sia Tao. Thank you, James. Uh, it's my honor to be here. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you. Many of our listeners will know that UTS ACRI produces a monthly wrap of the Australia-China relationship. As part of this, we invite perspectives from thought leaders. And the most recent wrap included a piece from Seattle titled, What a Virus Teaches Us About China-US Relations. We'll be exploring and expanding on that piece today. Right, Seattle, first question from me. To quote 
from the perspective that you contributed to last month's UTS ACRI monthly briefing, you said, in the face of a pandemic that has quickly gone global, one would expect the People's Republic of China and the United States, the two biggest players in global governance, to work together against it. Yet, unfortunately, for nearly two weeks, the two governments chose instead to embroil themselves in a war of words over the most appropriate name for the deadly virus and who ought to shoulder the blame for its outbreak. Indeed, that was certainly my perspective, watching China <laughs> and the US go at it from Sydney. What I wanted to ask you, Sietal, was how was that this turn, this, this turn towards more confrontational rhetoric from Washington and from Beijing, how was that turn seen and discussed in Beijing? So, for example, was there a consensus in non-government elite circles in academia, for example, that stepping up and engaging in a war of words with the US was appropriate or even necessary? Or was it more contested with some arguing that it wasn't such a good idea? And if there are different views, what are the main factors, the basic calculations each group is making that lead them to advocate for a particular approach? Well, let me say this, uh, just put the audience a little bit in the background. Uh, when the United States and China were engaged in this war of wars, um, starting around mid-March, it's because first there were a couple of US politicians, including the current Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, he insisted on using the word the Chinese virus or Wuhan virus to designate uh, this uh, COVID-19. And that angered very much uh, Chinese government officials and many Chinese ordinary people. And so after that, you had these uh, five tweets from the Chinese Minister of Foreign, uh, Foreign Affairs spokesperson, Mr. Zhao. And um, in one of the tweets, he implied that this virus actually was the first brought to Wuhan by the US Army delegation to a world military games. And so that's beginning to put the two countries really on a kind of a locker heads over each other uh, about you know, who should um, be blamed for the outbreak of the virus. Okay. Now back to the question, you know, was there a consensus in here that we should stand up and get tough with the United States uh, you know, in this uh, exchange of words? I would say no. Uh, one piece of evidence to support my own observation is you look at Chinese ambassador uh, to the United States, Mr. Chui Tiankai's interview. And in that interview, he made it very explicit. If I recall correctly, he said, I am the sole representative of the People's Republic of China in the United States. And so my views represent the views of the Chinese government. Mm. So his implied message is that there could be some dissenting voices, people who are saying that this is a conspiracy uh, from the United States side, but he was very clear that that kind of voices do not represent the official views of Beijing. And so that's one piece of evidence that there's no consensus within China mm. about you know, playing tit for tat with politicians in Washington. But of course, within the general public, there was a immense support, I have to say, for a hard uh, kind of a you know, hawkish approach to Washington. 
when you look at Chinese WeChat posts and um, some of these comments on Chinese Weibo, and you clearly see there's an upsurge of these nationalistic sentiments and saying we should stand firm and we should strike back against these politicians who are using the words Chinese virus or Wuhan virus. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Because、um, your example about the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. is suggesting there's some、um, different opinions within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but yet amongst the Chinese public,、um, the response supporting a more aggressive response to the U.S.、Uh, comments was actually, in fact,、um, to 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 an even greater extent. Sietar, let me go on to my next question. I thought it was a very interesting point you made in your perspective. Was that the recent negative turn in U.S.-China relations、um, actually occurred against an immediate backdrop where things were going pretty good?、Uh, just to quote you again, you said the year 2020 began somewhat promisingly for China-U.S. relations as the two governments on January 15 signed a preliminary agreement that eased the 18-month-long Bilateral trade war, exactly right.、Uh, it seems like a long time ago now, but I、yeah. guess this once again illustrates just how fragile the over- overall state and tone of the U.S.-China relationship is. So. I wanted to、um, explore the outlook for 2020. We know now that the U.S. is facing the likelihood of large numbers of COVID-19-induced deaths,、um, high unemployment, a potentially tanking economy, and of course, a political, a partisan political battle culminating in a November federal election. Now, I find it hard to feel optimistic about the outlook of U.S.-China relations in 2020, but you know U.S.-China relations much better than I do. So, what's your take? Are you seeing any potential off ramps for tensions that could take us in a more positive directions,、um, or is this going to be a tough year ahead?、Uh, James, I have to say、um, I'm quite pessimistic about the、uh, rest of the year for U.S.-China relationship. Or I would say, looking ahead, maybe four or eight more years,、uh, there are no signs to indicate that the two countries will get back on track in trying to fix their relationship.、Um, there are many reasons、um, on the U.S. side, and like you said, there's a political campaign going on, and then this is rising death、uh, in New York City and other places. On the Chinese side, you know, because of this lockdown of the whole country, basically, the Chinese economy is really、uh, dipping, and、uh, the GDP numbers would、uh, not look very good at all. Unemployment and other things, and so there are very strong incentives on both sides to play、um, some kind of a political、uh, rhetoric against each other. You know, that's natural. But the more structural forces is that because. Like I said in an article I wrote last year, I call this a new model of U.S.-China confrontation.、Mm. Now I say this is a new model because we are not probably going to see armed conflicts. We're not going to see a new type of a cold war, but we're going to see very intense rivalry on the ideological front, geopolitical front,、uh, and this would involve、uh, U.S.、Uh, criticism of Chinese human rights, religious freedom. And there's probably going to be more patrols.、Um, uh, this this freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea, and could potentially involving 
um, more U.S. visits or support, high-profile support for Taiwan. Okay, mm. and so the a can so all these factors combine to make a downturn inevitable. Um, but of course, we have to say the Trump administration's policies, like its trade war, and it's blaming the Chinese government for basically saying China is solely responsible for the outbreak of the uh, COVID-19, and that kind of rhetoric. Obviously, added to the already fraught relationships. So, I give in one example that my voice is not unknown in terms of uh, in having a pessimistic view of Chinese-U.S. relationships. Is that Professor Wang Jisu, and I think you probably know him, right, a very yep. prominent uh, analyst of U.S.-China relationship. He gave a public talk uh, two weeks ago, and towards the end of the talk, he had some kind of. Uh, um, Predictions about the future of U.S.-China relations, and I think um, I, I can't quote the original words, but he said something to the extent that there is no worst in U.S.-China relationships. There is only worse, and not worst. That things could get worse and worse, and mm. so we have not even seen uh, the relationship bottom out yet. Um, the election is not over and uh, the virus is going on in the United States. So there are many factors that can make the relationship even worse. So in one word, there's no going back for this relationship. Mm -hmm. This is the lowest moment since 1972, when Richard Nixon first visited Shanghai. Well, Seattle, sitting in Sydney, that's a confronting assessment. Um, and one of the reasons it's confronting is sort of leads into my next question. Observing the Australia-China relationship over the last five or six years, as I have, I've noticed that US-China tensions tend to have echoes in Australia. Then That's not saying there's some one-to-one -one relationship here, but debates that bubble up between the US and China tend to also crop up in the Australia-China context. For example, um, it has struck me particularly over, say, the past two weeks, how there's been a much louder chorus of voices in Australia calling for the government to blame the global spread of COVID-19 on the Chinese Communist Party, and in particular, its suppression of information and whistleblowers at the early stages of the spread in Wuhan. Now, to be sure, these voices aren't coming from the Australian Prime Minister, although I did note the Australian Prime Minister did reference that the virus originated from Wuhan, and he had some concerns about wet markets in China as well. But still, I don't want to overstate those sorts of things. Uh, but I've also seen commentary coming out of the United Kingdom, for example, along similar lines. So I wanted to ask you, as someone who is not working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing, and his job it is not to recite government talking points, what is your reaction and those of your academic colleagues to such calls to pin the blame on the Chinese Communist Party? Like I said just now, James, um, I, I, I think this is uh, not responsible to say that the Chinese government should be held for everything that has happened so far. Uh, this is uh, largely, my view, uh, you know, political rhetoric and it's politically motivated. Um, I said in an interview with uh, CGTN, China's, uh, you know, uh, China Central Global Television Network, uh, two weeks ago, I said, no government leader knows what is the best thing to do in a crisis, especially like this. This mm. is not a natural disaster, an earthquake or forest fire. And so these are the things that normally people know how to react, respond. 
but this is a, a medical crisis. It's a public health thing. And so we need a lot of uh, uh, medical information. We need to do a lot of scientific research. So for any government, now you look across the Pacific Ocean. Now, the U.S. government should probably have done much better, right, in terms of responding this. After all, China has been doing this for two months, fighting a war against the COVID-19. But look at the Trump administration. It comes across as totally unprepared. It does not even know what to do. So it, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of uh, accusations and charges against the Trump administration that it wasted two precious months and that it could have been uh, used for getting itself prepared. So my point is that every government has a learning curve, especially in a crisis like this. Mm. Besides, there's no indisputable evidence, scientific evidence, that patient zero lived in Wuhan or the virus originated from a wet market in that city. But of course, when you look at the Washington Post yesterday, there was an article by Josh Rogin, who basically said that this virus was something that related to the SARS virus. It comes from a bat. And basically, it means like there's some kind of a experiment going on in a laboratory in Wuhan. And uh, that happened back in December or even earlier, uh, November of 2019. Now, before there is clear, indisputable evidence to show, uh, we cannot really say that Beijing should be responsible, held, held responsible for this. But of course, you know, we have to admit that maybe in the very first couple of days, the Chinese government had moments of hesitation. But isn't this normal? I think for any government around the world, even for any human beings, faced with such a kind of unprecedented public health, we do need to weigh the pros and cons. After all, like think about you lock down a city with 11 million people and basically quarantine them. That's a drastic decision to make. Indeed. And it's interesting, um, Sietal, from an Australian perspective, um, you mentioned that China might have had some early missteps, but so has the United States. And what is a fact in the case of Australia is that most of our, more of our COVID-19 infections have actually originated from United States travellers and travellers from the European Union. Those from China have actually been a very, very small uh, proportion of the total. So some commentators in Australia saying, well, it was fine to close the border to Chinese travellers, but the mistake we made, and actually this is a point I've made myself, is that we didn't close the border to the United States or to the European as well at the same time, and that's got us in a few problems. All right, next question, Sieta. While Washington has been quick to point out the flaws or the missteps in China's um, response, I don't think anyone disagrees that once the Chinese leadership declared that the COVID-19 was a people's war, if I, remember the, if I remember the language correctly, the response in China thereafter was swift and bold. Um, although other commentators have noticed that this hasn't just been unique to China, other places have done quite well too. Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, 
all handling the public health challenge better than, say, the United States or much of Europe. So balancing all that out, what is your sense of how COVID-19 has impacted perceptions of China globally? So let's move away from the United States if we can. Has it damaged China's prestige or quite the opposite, enhanced it? I'd be particularly interested if you felt confident on any observations you had around Southeast Asia, um, given that's a region of geographical significance for both China and Australia. Uh, James, like I said, um, in, in my view, and I think this is a broadly shared uh, observation uh, that China has done a terrific job, especially, like I said, after the first few days of uh, hesitation, and especially after the lockdown was imposed on Wuhan. And uh, to borrow your own word, that is, you know, its reaction was viewed as a swift, decisive, and, and so China should be uh, commended for uh, the boldness of uh, the measures that's taken. I just published an article how the West failed the rest in the COVID-19 crisis. And my major argument in that piece is that in international relations, expectations often matter more than objective indicators of power. In this particular case of the global pandemic, the West, led by the United States, did a poor job in leading the world or its own people in fighting against the virus. So the United States basically underperformed worldwide expectations, whereas China, in my view, apparently outperformed expectations of many countries around the world. And so in that sense, the authority and the legitimacy of American power leadership had been seriously eroded, whereas that of Beijing, its authority and legitimacy have been significantly enhanced. So as to my uh, you know, observation about China's prestige, especially you said in Southeast Asia, um, I did not follow that closely about Southeast Asia, but my sense is that these Southeastern countries have been doing a pretty good job. Look at Thailand, look at Vietnam. Yes, they do have a, a, a rising number of cases, but they are not as on a large scale as you see in Italy or in the United States. Uh, maybe these countries are following the Chinese example of imposing early on is wearing um, face masks, keeping a social distance, etc. So I think you know maybe it's a cultural thing that these uh, Southeastern Asian countries and China, Japan, and South Korea, uh, people tend to follow government orders uh, more actively. And so that prevented a lot of these uh, infected cases. All right. Um, Seattle, next question. I want to uh, cross over both of our disciplines, me being an economist and you being an international relations professor, and ask a question that occurs at the intersection of these two areas. One thing I've noticed in Australia um, from reading commentary since the COVID-19 outbreak is that many people are saying COVID-19 signals the high point of globalization and now things will and need to move in the opposite direction. In Australia, for example, um, this has been prompted by shortages of some medical supplies, building materials, and so on. So I wanted to ask you around China's conversation towards these issues. China, of course, isn't short of manufacturing capacity, but look, it does rely on international markets for important supplies too, including medicines, raw materials, high-tech components, and so on. So, Seattle, in your reading of the commentary in China recently, has COVID-19 shook 
China's faith in globalization too? And I've got a bit of a selfish motive for asking this because the reason I'm interested is because China is such a major market for Australia. And so it's, it's thinking on this question impacts on Australia quite directly too. Oh, James, uh, you bet. You know, there's been a lot of discussion, a very heated debate here about what will happen in terms of the global supply chain. And is it possible that many foreign companies who used to be based in China are now going to relocate either to other parts of the world or are going to repatriate to their own home countries? And what would that mean for the Chinese economy? Um, so there's, uh, I would say there's a very, very clear anxiety about this potential negative impact uh, on Chinese economy. Um, I came across this headline from an Australian newspaper saying, between self-sufficiency and the globalization, you have to make a choice. Um, yes, a lot of people talking about self-sufficiency. Donald Trump is talking about this. I believe some Australian Politicians are also talking about this self-sufficiency. Do not rely too much on the single supplier, especially like China. China is now becoming the world's really largest uh, producer of many of these uh, daily necessities, you know, basic equipments, etc. Yes, but I think this, this is, is probably easily said than done. You are basically imagining a scenario where capitalists vow to disobey the law of capital. And right, the law right. of capital, you know, is to seek profits. Mm -hmm. Self-sufficiency is a great political slogan. If you're mm -hmm. running for office, James, um, you are an economist. You know this better than <laughs> I. If you are running for office in Sydney or Canberra, I think this would make you look great. You know, let's you know, become self-sufficient. Don't rely on Chinese medical products. But it is economically, I would not say suicidal, but at least it's economically implausible. Why would you do things that you are least good at in the global division of labor? Of course, under the flag of nationalism, patriotism, like Donald Trump, right? America first, make America great again. So you try to invoke this, your loyalty to the Australian flag, bring Australian companies from China back to Australia. But the production costs, assembly line, labor costs, etc., will make your business lose. You cannot just use taxpayer money to subsidize this forever. This is not going to be economically sustainable. So it does make good political points. But in my view, I think your economists know this better. This violates the basic law of capital. Mm, yeah, and certainly from an Australia perspective, Seattle, I mean, our domestic market is only 24 million people. You're not going to be able to achieve too many economies of scale only producing to that very small limited market. I guess it might be a bit easier for, say, the China in the United States, but for Australia, indeed, it would be pretty tough. Okay, final question, Seattle. Let's wrap this up. Um, I wanted to ask a question about Beijing's appetite for diplomacy and relationship building for the rest of the year. Now, you would be aware that Australia and China have had a couple tense years in political terms, although, to be sure, on the trade side of the relationship, things have actually never been better. 
Still, it is a fact that an Australian Prime Minister hasn't been invited to China since 2016. Now, clearly travel restrictions associated with COVID-19 make this unlikely in 2020 as well. Um, but has COVID-19 been so overwhelming in terms of national resources and specifically diplomatic resources in China that you think any opportunities to strengthen the relationship are likely to be few and far between? That is, is the diplomatic relationship more or less likely to go into hibernation like the Australian economy? Or might there be opportunities for clever diplomacy in Australia that could possibly find a listening ear in Beijing? I would say there is this possibility, James, that the two countries will kind of uh, warm up a little bit compared with uh, their uh, very cool attitudes towards each other in the past four years. You're right, there has been no uh, exchange at the uh, head of the state or head of the government level. There, there are many reasons. Uh, I, I guess you know this better than I do, especially from the Australian domestic point of view. Uh, but my own sense is that in the post-COVID-19 world order, China will face a very different diplomatic environment. And so there's a lot of, I can sense, there's a lot of animosity towards China in North America, in Europe. And if you follow the news, there are rising resentment in some parts of Africa too. And so when faced with this a very unfavorable new diplomatic environment, Australia could proactively coming in and reaching out its hands to Beijing and say, let's work together. Uh, that's, that's my own sense. There could be opportunities ahead uh, when this, this virus thing is gone. Uh, but of course, it takes two to tango. We all know this. And when both governments have a pretty strong sense of honor and a face, uh, it's hard when somebody reaches out and then it does not get reciprocated. So I think you know, the cooler heads in both capitals uh, need to come out and uh, you know, really spell out a vision for Australia and China. Um, uh, one thing I want to say before I conclude this is that both should think about how to make the relationship sustainable. Sustainable in a sense, as you are an economist, you know the numbers much better than I do that. So far, China-Australia relationship is almost exclusively focused on the economic dimension. But to make this relationship stable, sustainable, you need to add more dimensions, political dimension, cultural dimension, um, educational dimension already very heavy, right? But which particular additional dimension that we should add to make this relationship more sustainable? That's a question. But I think if you just focus on one dimension supported by China, Australia, dependence on raw materials and Chinese manufactured products, this could not be sustainable in the long term. So again, there could be opportunities in the future, especially if China faces a new and overwhelmingly unfriendly diplomatic front in North America and in Western Europe. 
Seattle, thank you very much for those observations. And I think that last piece of advice you gave to both China and Australia, that we should look for additional opportunities, not just in the economic realm, um, to enhance cooperation, that strikes me as being very, very wise advice indeed. Setel, it's been great talking to you. I'm delighted that for whatever political tensions there are in the Australia-China relationship, um, we can still continue with these frank and open academic discussions. It's been great having you on the ACRI podcast. We hope to have you on again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, James. Thanks for having me. That was Professor James Lawrenson, Director of UTS ACRI, and Professor Xie Tao, Dean of the School of International Relations and Diplomacy at Beijing Foreign Studies University and Adjunct Professor at UTS ACRI discussing the implications of COVID-19 for the US-China relationship and the geopolitical challenges these might bring to the fore for Australia. To follow our coverage of COVID-19, you can subscribe to the UTS ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website at australiachinarelations.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.